Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Good afternoon and welcome to Book Sandwiched In. Today we welcome Dr. Melanie Mays, an environmental research scientist at ORNL and board member of Way South and Tennessee Citizens for Wilderness Planning. Dr. Mays' research has included investigations of contaminant interactions with soils and groundwater and learning about movement of carbon between soil and the atmosphere. And she hiked thousands of miles of southern Appalachian mountain trails. <laughs> Dr. Mays will discuss The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells. We want to give a warm welcome to Dr. Melanie Mays. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. This is great to see such a great audience, so thanks. Um, So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my experience. So I'm not actually a climate scientist. I'm really a geologist. My master's and PhD were in contaminant hydrology, so thinking about how metals and radionuclides move through subsurface materials and soils. About a decade or so, I was asked to help with a project looking at carbon and how quickly carbon moved through soils. I said, ah, I can do that. It's how stuff moves through dirt. Um, And then I got really interested in carbon because soils are a huge reservoir of carbon, more than is in the atmosphere and in all of the plant biomass combined. Soils are really important in terms of carbon. So now, actually, most of the research that I do at work is with soils and with carbon and thinking about greenhouse gas emissions in tropical environments and other places. And over the past several years, I had the great opportunity to be involved with a U.S. government report, which is this State of the Carbon Cycle report. This thing was released on Black Friday in 2018. And this is sponsored by the U.S. Global Change Research Program. This, those are the 13 federal agencies that do any research at all involved with carbon. And I was one of five lead scientific authors. We had over 200 authors who wrote all of the individual 19 chapters. And then we were also basically overseen by a number of federal-level people. So this was great, and I learned so much. At the same time, I've had opportunity to get fairly involved with reading the Climate Science Special Report, and I'd also like to point out the fourth National Climate Assessment, which was also released in 2018. These are all online U.S. government publications on climate and carbon here in the United States. The Soccer 2 report, which is the State of the Carbon Cycle report, I will always call it Soccer 2 because that acronym is stuck, right? These things are all freely available. You can download them. And the coolest thing, you can see that these things are gigantic, anywhere from 400 to 1,500 pages. But they all have very nice like web presences and executive summaries and things that are very digestible that you can read without reading 1,500 pages of scientific deep literature. And the highlights actually are over there on the table. If you want to look at them, please don't run off with them, but you're more than welcome to look at them. And so as I talk about this book, I will rely on things I've learned from these reports to help understand context 
This one is in the Soccer 2 report, and usually I try to say where these things came from in these slides. Sorry, folks, on the podcast, no slides for you. But at any rate, what this shows is recent trajectories of global carbon dioxide, that is CO2, and global methane, which is CH4. You can see this is a very persistent upward trend since 1980. And this book refers particularly to something called the hockey stick diagram, This was referred to in Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth movie probably a decade ago now. This was published in 1999, and what it shows is temperature anomaly, that is differences with current, from 1000 AD to 2000 AD. And what you will notice is that it's basically flat from 1000 until about, say, 1950, and then it takes off in this very strong upward trend, which is, of course, the business end of the hockey stick. It's why we call it that. Okay, so this has to do with temperature, and it has to do with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, as well as other things. Methane, nitrous oxide, water vapor. These are all contributors as well, and they all kind of roll together. We talk mostly about carbon dioxide, but the fact is they all contribute. Now, if you did not read this book and you want a very short summary, I would point you to this article in New York Mag. This is by the same author, and so you can look it up. I'm a scientist, so when I read this, I wanted to see, oh, well, he says, between 15 and 25%, what paper said that? And I didn't see that, because this book actually does not have footnotes. As a scientist, I would have loved to have footnotes, so I knew exactly where everything this person said came from. He didn't do that. There is a very nice detailed bibliography section in the back, but it's a little hard to piece exactly what he said with where it came from. This is a criticism of the book, and he knew it, so that's why he published this. This is effectively an executive summary. You can go there and you can read the context of what the book says, And he relates it to specific scientific studies and scientific authors. I did look at this bibliography, and I don't know all the papers, although I do know a lot of the people that he cited. People like Michael Mann, Wally Broker, Lee Kump, Naomi Oreskes, Naomi Klein. These people are very well known in the climate space. But I would say at the same time that this particular book is giving us a vision of how bad it can be. So it's saying this is absolutely how bad climate change could be for us. And so in particular, there were things I wanted to look at, like this is for real. And some of the things that I wasn't that familiar with, I looked up, it's like, "Eh, yeah, I found it. It's there. There are papers in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that really do say this. Eek. Um, It's kind of scary. And so this book really, like, really hit me in the gut. In the last 25 years, half of the CO2 emissions ever were produced. Three-fourths of the insect population in Germany is gone compared with what it used to be. 22% of Earth's land mass was altered between 1992 and 2005. Half of vertebrate animals have died in the last 40 years. We are burning 80% more coal than we did in the year 2000, a mere two decades ago. 96% of the world's mammals 
are us or livestock, things that feed us. And Wallace Wells makes the point that I didn't know, which is that this has happened within a single generation. He says it again and again and again. And it's my generation. I went to school to do hydrology and geochemistry to help be environmental to save the earth. And in fact, (laughs) all of this is happening for people from my generation and yours. I have lived a very comfortable and lucky life. I'm a first-generation college student. Nobody's more shocked than me to have gotten a PhD. Life has been great to me. How did this happen? I've tried to be an environmentalist, right? But the fact is, I've logged about 300,000 miles in the air. Scientists travel a whole lot. I work in the tropics. (laughs) So it's sad, you know? This book really was disturbing. Each cross-country flight causes three cubic meters of Arctic sea ice to melt. Hmm. What about everybody else? People who live in the Marshall Islands. When sea level rises, their homes are gone. Same for Bangladesh. Folks in Central America, the tropics are going to be hit very, very hard by temperature changes. And so this book was hard to read. And in fact, when I was finishing the book and was digging around about what I was going to, what in the world am I going to say in this presentation, I found this particular article. This is on Vice. It's called Climate Despair is Making People Give Up on Life. (laughs) And it really made me think, what am I doing with my life? I think I'm doing good. I'm a scientist. I'm helping things. Hmm. My generation is killing the earth and quickly. The author mentions a term called human futilitarianism. And basically, there are people who, being aware of the climate situation, say, forget it. It's hopeless. What could I possibly be doing that would matter? That's a pretty tough message. We really like happy endings. And this is not a happy ending. July 2019 is indeed the hottest month on record for the planet. We have record lows of Arctic ice and Antarctic sea ice, sea ice for both of them. And this followed June 2019 being the hottest on record for the globe. And if we look back, the hottest five years on record are indeed the last five years. And in fact, the hottest 10 years on record date back only to 1998. And so what this means is we have left the conditions under which humans evolved. We've only been here a couple hundred thousand years, the blink of an eye in Earth time, speaking as a geologist. And we aren't going back because the residence time of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is very, very long. What's here right now is not going anywhere in our lifetimes. And so we have actually left the climate that I would say everyone in this room grew up with, including myself. It's not coming back. It's not possible. And most 
recently, and this is even more depressing. The Paris Accord, you guys have heard of this. This is COP21. This was in December of 2015. All of the nations of the earth got together in Paris, and they agreed to set voluntary limits for carbon dioxide emissions. Only at that time, Syria and Nicaragua didn't sign on. Since then, Syria has signed on, and of course, you're probably all aware that the U.S. is pulling out. It's not a done deal yet because there's a commitment, but the president has said that we are pulling out. And the two degrees C was specifically to help island nations. There was a big fit at COP21 from island nations because they said, if we don't stop this at two degrees C, we're going to drown. And so they settled on this. But you know what? No matter what we are doing, there is not a single nation who's going to make it. It's only been almost four years since then, and not a single nation is on track to make a two-degree C commitment. Now we are looking more like 3.2 degrees C. By the way, scientists always speak in metric. It's about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit per one degree C. And there was a great article in the Washington Post, and this was on August 13th, and it's called Two Degrees C, Beyond the Limit. Basically, the authors of this article analyzed NOAA data, and they concluded that 71 counties in the U.S. have already hit the two-degree C mark. We're already there. And that one in 10 Americans, which is about 34 million people, are already living in rapidly heating regions, particularly in the northeastern U.S., and in Southern California. And the article talks about this lake in New Jersey, Hoppet Kong, I think, basically is, it's near the Jersey Shore. They used to have all these ice fishing festivals in this particular lake, and back in the days before refrigeration was typical, they would mine the ice on these lakes for use in shipping, to ship things around the country. And so ice fishing and ice harvest is a huge part of their history. Um, and many people think about global warming and they think about wildfires and hotter temperatures and things like that. But the fact is it's higher winter temperatures that are affecting a lot of these places, particularly New Jersey and Rhode Island. The average New Jersey temperature at this place from December through February now exceeds zero degrees Celsius. In other words, the lakes don't freeze anymore. We talk and we think about climate change as a thing that is going to happen. And if you read this book, and as I talk through things today, you will see that it is not a thing that is going to happen. It is a thing that has happened and that is happening. It is happening right now, and we are all living in it. And so will all of your children and grandchildren. Weather is what happens sort of day to day. It's going to rain tomorrow. It's going to be cold. Climate are averages over 30 years. So when I talk about one degree C warming, what I mean is that average is now one degree C higher, say, this 30 years versus the last 30 years. Climate is integrated over time. So you can't say, oh, it's cold out, so there's no global warming. This graph that I'm showing you shows projected changes. This is from a U.S. government report, one of the ones that I cited. And we have different scenarios. They call them RCP, 
relative concentration pathways, it basically has to do with the amount of energy in the atmosphere, which is related directly to the amount of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. In the year 2100, all of the continental U.S., for the most part, is going to be 4 or 10 degrees Fahrenheit higher. So this book, I think, is fairly apocalyptic. We already are at, basically, 1 degree C. We're already there. I was just talking to you about some places that were already at 2 degrees C. I think he's a little reactionary in a lot of this. Sometimes he's talking about the absolute worst case. Sometimes that's past the year 2100. But in general, I think these things are, it's, it's for real, and it's happening, and we know it's happening. One of the things that surprised me the most was this heat death thing. Our temperatures are 98.6 degrees. And you know, if you get a fever, and if you get up to 106, 107, like you're, you're, you're gone. Like you can't live that way very long. You're toast. Well, as we increase our temperature... In the outside, when we get to plus 6 or plus 7 degrees C, ahead of what we are right now, and again, this is something that is likely to happen after the year 2100, it's going to be too hot to work outside. Large parts of the tropic in the Middle East could be somewhere you can't live anymore. Wallace Wells says we will not be able to do outdoor summer work in the lower Mississippi Valley. And all of the U.S. east of the Rockies will be hotter than anywhere in the world now. There's also a term called hyperthermia. I've only really heard of hypothermia. That's when you get too cold, but hyperthermia, I guess, is when you get too hot. Um, And he says in this period of time in Bahrain, you could get hyperthermia in your sleep. So this will change places that we can live. And, of course, what this means is we will have things like climate refugees, Many of you may know that the situation in Syria that has been happening over the last few years, it's not solely based on climate, but they've had a major drought that affects food supply, and this is another reason why people leave. We will potentially have many climate refugees in the future if the things that Wallace Wells points to actually come to pass. Food production will also be impacted. To some extent... Plants like more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but they don't like intense storms, and they don't like really, really hot temperatures. And in particular, wheat and cereal crops, notice they are typically grown in the middle of the U.S., in the Great Plains, and up through Canada, places that are fairly moderate in terms of temperature. And for every one degree C temperature rise, yields may drop 10%. If we get to plus 5 degrees C and we have 50% more people, which is likely to happen because we're always making more of us, we will have 50% less food potentially without anyone stepping in, right? We're always bioengineering things. We make better crops. So this doesn't account for those kinds of things that might mediate the effects. However, that's pretty scary. And, of course, we already have food insecurity, right here in the U.S., as well as in lots of other parts of the world. And, of course, there are pathogens and things that may be exacerbated by heat. Or we're also having a lot of issues with invasive plants, invasive pathogens. So there are other things that will make it harder for us to cope with this. 
rainstorms are 40% more intense since 1950 in the U.S. In the Northeast, it's 70% more intense. Hurricane Harvey that hit Texas a couple years ago is a 500,000-year event. That means it's supposed to happen once every 500,000 years. It received 19 inches per hour during that storm. Now, in my work, I have been involved with some work for the Nuclear Regulatory Agency. What we do is think about probable maximum precipitation. At any given location, somebody knows how much rain can fall at that spot. This is what we use to site nuclear power plants and to design nuclear power plants so that they can withstand a major flood. But we are breaking these records. So what this means, of course, is that our infrastructure is not designed for our climate anymore. The California drought was off the charts. Extreme drought that hasn't been seen before. Massive wildfires that followed it. And, of course, it can happen here, too. Most of you are probably local and have been here a few years. We had a very dangerous fire that came down from the Great Smoky Mountains and burned through Gatlinburg a few years ago. Fourteen people died, and it was a drought year. It was a strong drought, but we could do worse. Big storms are a huge drain on our economy. I do quite a bit of work in Puerto Rico. I was there three weeks after Hurricane Maria, and they say it will take Puerto Rico 26 years to recover from this. They have a 21% decrease in per capita income right now as a result of that storm. It will take them decades to recover. Climate change could reduce global economic output by 20% by 2100, according to Wallace Wells. Now, when we talk about warming... If there are feedbacks, these feedbacks can enhance the warming effect and make it worse. This is what we call a positive feedback. There are negative feedbacks, too, that might make it better. But for the most part, I'm going to talk to you about positive feedbacks. And an example of that is warming in the Arctic. We are thawing permafrost, melting sea ice. It's causing land instability and even emerging diseases, as he talks about. And so this is from one of our reports this is the difference between mean annual Arctic surface air temperatures between 2001 and 2015. This is a mere 18 years ago. And what you can see is the area around the pole is anywhere from 2 to 4 degrees Celsius warmer. It's huge. Scientists have been monitoring permafrost on the north slope of Alaska. This is continuous permanent permafrost for the last 40 years at 20 meters depth. And what you can see is the temperature increases are anywhere from three to four degrees Celsius at 20 meters depth between 1976 and 2016. Permafrost soils contain maybe a couple of trillion tons of carbon and it's frozen. So it's there, and it doesn't decompose and make CO2 and methane because it's frozen. But if it's not frozen, microbes will grab onto this carbon, and they will decompose it. And they will make lots more CO2, which will be a positive feedback to the warming that caused the thaw in the first place. Wallace Wells says that the permafrost line in Canada has retreated 
80 miles in northern Canada in the last 50 years. We may lose 10 or 15 or more kilograms of carbon per meter cubed just by 2050. This is going to add lots of CO2 into the atmosphere and because it's permafrost, that means there's also a thawing effect. We're going to make lots of water to add to this. And when we have wet soils, we don't just make CO2, we also make methane. Methane itself is about 30 times stronger in terms of its warming potential than CO2. So again, another nasty positive feedback in the Arctic that's going to make things a lot worse. The IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this is the international body that studies climate change and produces a report every few years, says that we will lose 40 to 80% of our permafrost by 2100. And Wallace Wells talks actually about emerging diseases. So apparently there was like some kind of a thawing corpse of a caribou or something like that. And some people actually got anthrax from it. They've identified the 1918 flu in the same way. So there are lots of just nasty risks associated with this. Changes in sea ice from 1984 to 2016. There's a lot less sea ice, but if you draw a line for sea ice extent, what you get is a 13% decrease since 1980. So this is a lot of melting. Polar vortexes, we never used to hear about polar vortexes before. They did used to happen, but we hear about them a lot more, potentially because of all this thaw. It's putting lots of water and lots of energy into the atmosphere. Another really scary thing, actually, is that as the contrast in temperatures between the poles and the equator decreases, what this means is the Gulf Stream, this is what carries warm air from the tropics up to the northeastern U.S. and on over to Iceland and Greenland and the U.K., is slowing. Wallace Wells says that the Gulf Stream is the slowest it has been in the last 1,500 years. And this is a major contributor to ocean and atmospheric circulation. And it could dramatically change weather if this continues. And he also points out that the slowing Gulf Stream actually causes sea level rise in the eastern U.S. to be worse. The eastern U.S. has a very broad, shallow slope. That Gulf Stream is slowing down. It's actually carrying water with it. It's not just temperature, it's water. And so what that means is it's causing sea level rise to be worse in the eastern U.S., which is, of course, where many of our cities are. There's even one more that I have to share with you. And this one's pretty important. So when there's ice in the Arctic and snow, these things are great reflectors of sunlight. They can reflect 90 plus percentage of the sunlight that comes in. But when they're gone, what you end up with is all these dark things, the ocean. As it gets warmer, we're going to have a lot more trees grow there. Right now it's tundra, there aren't trees. As you get exposed soil and plants, these are things that are going to soak up the heat from the sun and make it even warmer. This is going to make things a lot worse. And in terms of sea level rise, so what you're looking at now is a sea level rise graph. The one on the top are observations and the one on the bottom are projections. 
And you can see we're going up to about eight feet by 2100, which is very consistent with what Wallace Wells says. This comes out of one of our government reports. And he says it will affect 375 million people and over 440,000 square miles. 2.4 million properties in the U.S. alone worth $1 trillion. What this means, of course, is more climate refugees, and they aren't the kind of refugees we're used to thinking about. Some of the worst effects Wallace mentions are after 2100. And in this book, it's hard to tell if he's talking about 2050, 2100, 20... You don't know. The fact is, though, we really don't exactly know what's going to happen. This is an apocalyptic version of what our future could be. But we still have choice. To some extent, we're locked in. We're at one degree C, some places are two. We might be stuck with three. But it isn't too late to do something. And they fall into several categories. The A number one most important obvious thing that everybody knows is to decrease emissions. It's a lot easier to not do it than it is to clean it up later. And we can do this by simply decreasing use. We can increase efficiencies. We can use more renewables. There are also things that are referred to as negative emissions. Wallace Wells points out that there are people out there who say that negative emissions are magical thinking, <laughs> that it is not a thing that we can do. I don't believe that. Our country, and in fact, our globe, is filled with technological capabilities. And we are here today living the lives we live because of that technological expertise and advances. What we lack is the investment. It ain't cheap at all. And of course, the other thing that we lack is the will. We're just simply not doing it. And I don't mean just us here in the U.S. As I pointed out, we may have decided to pull out of the Paris Accords, but other countries of the world who are signatories are not making it either. But there are things we can do. So negative emissions, what are known as biological carbon capture and storage, afforestation and soil carbon sequestration, and geological engineering. These are... We call it geology, but I don't know why. Most of the solutions are in space. But that's what they call it. I'll talk through those. And the other thing I'm going to say is I'm going to draw back on the soccer report. Soccer report shows that we have made very important changes in carbon emissions in North America in the last decade. We have transitioned from coal to natural gas to a very large extent. We're not there yet, but it's been very, very significant. We've increased renewables and alternative fuels. We've replaced aging infrastructure, including power lines and power plants and pipelines. We've done a lot. We've increased efficiencies of buildings. Wallace Wells says that half of British emissions are from efficiencies in construction and waste. We waste a lot. He says two-thirds of our power energy is wasted in one form or another. We can make a lot of headway with improvements, lead buildings and things like that. Transportation alternatives, biofuels, public transportation, more stringent cafe standards. These are the ones that govern your cars. 
we've actually done a lot here in North America. Now you can actually see solar and wind and other on this figure. And you can also see that natural gas has increased at the expense of coal. We can still do it and still grow our economy. This comes out of the Soccer 2 report. And the CO2 from energy has decreased and has been decreasing since about 2005. But GDP is continuing on this very straight upward trend. North America energy use has dropped, but emissions have dropped even more. So what this tells you is that we are technologically capable of making changes for efficiencies and doing things better so that we waste less. Waste is a very significant part of our systems. Now, to talk a little bit about geoengineering, I am by no means an expert on these, but I just want to say, hey, they're here. So they include things like basically spraying sea salt into clouds to increase reflectivity. If you want to thin the high clouds, maybe you reduce that blanket effect that holds in greenhouse gases. You can add aerosols into the atmosphere because particles basically are going to block sunlight. You can do afforestation. Again, this is planting trees. And you can do things like ocean fertilization and biomass energy with carbon sequestration and storage. Folks at Harvard are actually putting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere in order to see if it can reflect sunlight and cool temperatures. Okay? It's pretty extreme. The thing is about this, there are no controls to this. You just put it up there and you hope it works. And anyone can do it. If I had enough money and I felt I could do it, nobody's going to stop me. It's easy. It'll probably work. But there's a pretty big drawback to this because it'll cause acid rain. And... <laughs> And so acid rain is a bit of a problem. Our plants don't like it, and we like to eat plants, and we like to eat meat that eats plants. Acid rain also causes pretty severe soil acidification, which makes it harder to grow plants. So there are drawbacks to this, but it's a thing we can do. Iron fertilization is another thing we can do. People have also done experiments with this out in the ocean. You basically just add iron sulfate in this case, and what it does is it feeds plankton, they do photosynthesis, right? And so that means they pull CO2 out, and they make oxygen instead, and then they themselves, they're carbon, and they sink down to the bottom of the ocean, and you are sequestering carbon. Another thing we can do, this is even crazier, but it's likely to happen, basically putting mirrors and big reflectors out into space so that we are reflecting more of incoming sunlight, the global warming would be quite a bit worse if it weren't for pollution. Thank goodness, because pollution is particles, and particles do what? They keep sunlight from hitting the earth. And so it could be worse than what we have right now. We can do things like carbon capture and storage. You can do this at power plants, basically. Capture stuff out of the stack and send it down underground. This is kind of like fracking. When we do hydraulic fracking in order to get natural gas, which is what has enabled this transition to natural gas, we basically are going very, very deep. So this is not really a risk for groundwater. I'm not really sure it's going to work. We don't know if there are fractures and things like that. This is fully experimental. We have 18 of these plants globally right now. 
Wallace Wells says that we need to open one and a half of these per day for the next 70 years to get to two degrees C. I don't know if that's true, but it's what he says. And he says the cost is about 100 million bucks each, which is only 40% of our global GDP. You can do the same kind of thing with bioenergy. Instead of burning coal or natural gas, you can grow plants and then you can burn them. And you can grow trees. There are very significant afforestation activities going on around the globe today. This is not a big enough wedge to solve our problem. The fact is we kind of have to do all of these things, very likely, because our time is quite short. And we can do things like minimizing land use change. Land use change is huge. We can improve agricultural soil practices so that we aren't allowing more carbon to escape and that so we're actively sequestering carbon. Methane emissions from livestock are really important. So if you eat less meat and less dairy, dairy, by the way, is worse than meat. It accounts for more methane than meat does. I'm a good vegetarian. It's not good enough. We can reduce alteration of wetlands and coastal ecosystems. Both of these kind of environments store tons of carbon, and when we develop them, we release lots of carbon out into the atmosphere, which is what's happening with oil palm plantations in um, Indonesia. This is a big problem there, but nobody's doing anything about it. Food waste is surprisingly big. This is a big contributor to greenhouse gases. And so is nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is a process that is very, very inefficient and consumes a lot of energy to make fertilizer. So we have a lot to do. And the fact is we know what to do. This is not a mystery. There are technological things we're not good at yet. Carbon capture and storage, for example, we haven't done enough to know how well it's going to work and to do it cheaply and to do it efficiently. But we know what to do. The IPCC says we need to cut emissions in half in the next 12 years to make 2 degrees C. And if we wait 10 years, we're going to need to cut 30% every year. All we need to do is overhaul our energy, transportation, agriculture, and infrastructure systems. We can do this. And we need to do it now. We can't wait till 2075. A 2008 review that Wallace Wells cited, and I went and looked it up, it was from MIT, it says it will take 400 years at our current pace to fix these problems. And as I mentioned earlier, this is not going to be cheap. Any of these estimates run up against our actual global GDP very quickly. But every addition of, say, one degree C warming reduces economic growth by 1%. Mind you, like, we're thrilled if we get 3% growth. So, it's big. It's really big. I'm going to close with a little quote. It's almost exactly the words that are used in this book. But he says, to the brink of instability in one generation, this is also a measure of our power. We can do things. And we are gods who hold the fate of the world in our hands. But we are more inclined, at least right now, to run from that responsibility rather than to embrace it. Or to even admit we see it, though it is as plain as a steering wheel in front of us. Thanks. 
I've almost recovered from the depression that I got from reading this book, and I wanted to share that with you. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.